I can't see how Iran can lose these assets. And I do believe that these groups are prepared to put themselves and, by extension, Iraq at the service of Iranian interests. Hi, this is Thanasi Kambanis in Beirut. On this episode of TCF World, we invite Fanar Haddad to talk about the Iraqi militias uh, ahead of the upcoming elections. And in the second half, we'll have Aaron Lund uh, talking to us from Sweden. This is episode number 12 of the TCF World podcast. This is the Nasi Kambanis in Beirut. With me, I have Fanar Haddad, a senior research fellow at the Middle East Institute at the National University of Singapore. He's on the line with me right now from, uh, from Singapore. Welcome, Fanar. Hi, Thanasi. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Uh, You've just written a, uh, a report for, uh, for the Century Foundation about the Hashid al-Shabi, the popular mobilization units uh, in, in Iraq. Uh, and uh, I've got some, some questions for you off that. But tell, tell us first off, what, what, are these, um, what are these PMUs and, and why, are they, why are they important? Well, I think, uh, well, where to start? The PMUs, as is well known, uh, sort of emerged out of 2014, out of the emergency in 2014 with the fall of Mosul. Uh, and it was a initially a response to the call of Grand Ayatollah Ali Sistani uh, for Iraqis to volunteer in the Iraqi security services to help repel the threat of the Islamic State. Uh, but again, as is well known, what actually transpired, what actually happened was uh, you had this mass mobilization, um, but it was more towards uh, these uh, Shia paramilitary groups rather than the Iraqi security services. Now, some of these uh, groups were set up as a result of the uh, of Sistani's call in uh, 2014. Um, but a far greater concern, I think, to most observers uh, are the pre-existing uh, and long-standing uh, Shia paramilitary groups, Shia militias, uh, that some predating 2003 even, but um, many of these have had a sort of, a, shall we say, checkered history in Iraq and in Syria as well, uh, very Iran-tilting, um, and that's a cause for concern uh, to many in the region. And the, the, I mean the, the the discussion about the PMUs. So right now, these these militias are uh, in in various formations are contesting uh, the the upcoming parliamentary elections, uh, and they're and they're viewed as I guess a different type of force in Iraqi politics than they were before because of the legalization of this new structure uh, since the war against ISIS. Um, but, but, but before we get into the, that, I, I think it's useful uh, to, to contextualize this because, I mean, since uh, since the fall of Saddam and the return uh, of, of various exile movements and the, and the establishment of what's become the new Iraqi politics, there's been a, a concern since, since day one about m- militia politics politics and in particular about uh, Shia sectarian militias uh, uh, that are transformed into um, into political forces. And it's and it strikes me when I hear people, you know, both within Iraq and, and, and outside who express concern about these new uh, or newly empowered militias that uh, that they're they're almost saying uh, we don't mind the old generation of militias that went into politics, but it alarms us to have, you know, to have new entrants, even though the, the blueprint is almost uh, almost identical. Absolutely. In some cases, it's actually the same the same groups. I mean, uh, 
probably most emblematic of this is the Badr organization, uh, which again predates 2003. Now, Badr have happily worked with the Americans. Uh, they've headed the Ministry of Interior. They headed now actually the Ministry of Interior. Uh, they're part of the Iraqi state. So I think you're spot on in that there is this sort of strange, there's a bit of the, the debate about the PMUs and the criticism of the PMUs uh, I find to be quite misplaced. Uh, there's a lot for people to uh, um, to elicit concern with regards to the PMUs. At the very least, this the idea of having these the the proliferation of these armed groups, of these militias, of these paramilitary groups. Call them what you will. It's not exactly the the barbarian ideal. Fine, that's one line of of of, uh, of uh, concern. But then to sort of portray this as some kind of a challenge to the Iraqi state or a threat to the Iraqi state, as if this all came out of nowhere in 2014, much like yourself, I, I disagree with that. Um, and I think that the legalization in 2016, if I'm not mistaken, in November 2016, the formal uh, legalization, um, gave sort of a, a legal cover for something that had long existed anyway. So there's been a problem throughout post-2003 Iraq uh, in terms of demobilization, in terms of security sector reform. Uh, and one of the problems is that there's this inherent paradox to the whole setup. Uh, take the Peshmerga, the, uh, the uh, Kurdish militias or the Kurdish paramilitaries. These have been incorporated into the structure, the governing structure of the Kurdistan region and into the Iraqi security forces. But for all intents and purposes, much like the Hajj today, these are units or organizations that were incorporated wholesale. They weren't blended in to, to uh, uh, national structures or to sort of uh, something that's non... It wasn't a case of diluting the Peshmerga into a bigger structure. Uh, and I think something similar is happening today with the Hashd al-Shabi, um, and it's a continuation of a practice that, as you pointed out, has been there, whether formally or informally, be it the Jaysh al-Mahdi, be it the Peshmerga, be it the Awakening Councils, um, and the Americans have worked with, with uh, most or, 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 or all of these, these groups. Um, so I think that the criticism, criticism is warranted, it's just misplaced. Well, it's a, I mean, you alluded to this with your reference to the, the Weberian ideal that, you know, the, the concern or one major concern is that uh, this development is just going to further fragment an already weak and ineffective Iraqi state so that enshrining uh, this, this whole coterie of militias just takes us yet another step further down this road uh, towards which down which we can't imagine, uh, uh, you know, a functional unitary uh, Iraqi national state. Is there is there some is there some uh, optimism in the in the appearance of the Hashid? Because, among other things, it actually enabled a military resistance to ISIS that the state itself had been unable to provide? Um, and on the other hand, uh, how much should we worry that this is, you know, another step in the Lebanonization or, or fragmentation of, of, a, of an Iraqi state that already looks like Swiss cheese or like... Uh, uh, okay. Um, and do stop me if I miss something out, because uh, there's at least three points here. Let's take the issue of this sort of uh, turning what, what is currently Swiss cheese into an even more fragmented um, entity. Uh, I think, again, like uh, we have to be realistic about how close the, the Weberian ideal was, was uh, how achievable that is, even in the best of circumstances. Um, so with that in mind, uh, to portray this as sort of this looming threat that Iraq will, will sort of only get more dysfunctional because of the hashed, I'm not so sure. 
And one of the reasons for this is I think that the hashed is actually uh, quite emblematic of the post-2003 state. I think it's a product of the state. I think it's a, it's a function of, of post-2003 Iraqi uh, ideas of governance. Um, and so I don't think that now that the hashed is on, uh, on the scene, that now there's this new threat to the Iraqi state. Quite the contrary. I think it's part and parcel of post-2003 Iraq. Um, in, but having, having said that, there's also uh, a point that is often overlooked, that the prime minister's office does have some levers, uh, and indeed there are constraints on the various uh, 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 formations of the Hashdi Shabi, um, one of which is that they cannot be seen to be anti-state. They neither view themselves as anti-state nor for their own sort of self-image would it be helpful for them to be viewed as such by a critical mass of Iraqis. That in itself is a constraint on what the Hashd al-Shabi, uh, how far they can push their, their authority. Um, secondly, their relationship with the prime minister's office, their relationship with various uh, uh, poles of, of Iraqi power is one of symbiosis, I think. Um, they need, to some extent at least, they need the goodwill of the prime minister's office. Um, if they have been formalized into part of uh, Iraq's governing structures and have been formalized by law, um, they uh, benefit from the Iraqi budget, for example. Um, so again, they are a part of the system rather than sort of a, a challenger that's encroaching upon it. With regards to the, uh, I believe you mentioned the Lebanon example, sort of the Lebanonization, and right from the beginning people did sort of worry, will this be another Hezbollah, will it be another IRGC? Again, I'm not so sure that this is uh, um, likely. Uh, for one reason, if, if for no other, um, Iraqi Shiism is a lot more fragmented uh, than Lebanese Shiism. I don't think that any one unitary force like the Hashd al-Shabi can monopolize or dominate Iraqi Shiism the way that Hezbollah has dominated Lebanese Shiism. I just don't think that Iraqi Shiism uh, uh, lends itself to that, to that sort of monolithic or, or near monolithic uh, um, veneer. Um, and uh, to just go back to, again to the issue of the symbiosis between the various nodes of power, that there is room for pushback if uh, uh, the Hashd al-Shabi begins to encroach or, be, or begins to uh, extend, overextend or overreach, um, the Prime Minister's Office is also likewise trying to, and not just the Prime Minister's Office, of course, uh, the Iraqi state, let's say, is trying to legislate in a manner that will uh, normalize uh, the Hashd al-Shabi as a part of, of the state, as a part of the uh, web of institutions that make up the Iraqi state today. Well, so that, right, the optimistic read is that uh, essentially, the popular mobilization units uh, uh, now now organized under a government commission become more or less another security ministry. So whereas before you had the interior ministry and the defense ministry, now you also have a third player uh, that is, you know, just like those other ministries, a, a state entity that has non-state parties within it that are very powerful, but that is essentially a piece of the bureaucracy. Uh, and and I, I guess that in some ways seems possible. Now, the Hashid is not some kind of single unitary militia. It's a ad hoc administrative uh, union of a very disparate array of, of militia groups. And it's, I think, these groups that are the sort of long-term cause for concern. Absolutely. Uh, now, with regards to the, um, I mean, you mentioned the optimistic read. So to tie it into to these groups, I don't think that holds water either. 
Um, so yes, it's part of the uh, state, but it's not. Does, that does not mean that the state or the prime minister's office or the commander in chief is the sole sort of arbiter of uh, uh, the Hashd al-Shabi's actions, as is supposed to be the case uh, on paper formally. Um, but I do see the relationship between them as one of bargaining rather than one commanding the other or one being able to completely ignore the other. Uh, so there is that balancing act, there is that bargaining going on. And I think that this also applies to the groups that you mentioned, like Asa'ab Ahl al-Haq, like Najabai, like Kitab Hezbollah, uh, that there is also that bargaining uh, going on between uh, uh, various branches of the Iraqi state and various uh, arms of the uh, security apparatuses and these guys. Um, but, I mean, there's no denying, nor have they denied uh, the issue of their links to Iran um, and their loyalty to Iran. I mean, there is definitely a loyalty there. But again, I, when this isn't to sort of uh, uh, diminish from the gravity of this, um, but it's just the reality that there is that constraint uh, that they're in a bargaining relationship with the other arms of the uh, Iraqi state. And indeed, they have an Iraqi public that, uh, uh, that they are concerned about. Um, having said that, of course, it's well known that some of these groups have been active in Syria. Uh, this has been a challenge to Iraqi sovereignty. It's been a challenge to, uh, um, uh, to Syrian sovereignty. It's been a challenge to Western interests in the region. And I can't see how, that's, how that threat is, not gonna, is gonna change in the near future. Uh, I can't see how Iran can lose these assets. I think these assets, because there's an organic element to them in Iraq, uh, and there's an ideological tie with Iran and a material, tangible tie as well uh, 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 with Iran, um, it's difficult to see how this can be rolled back entirely. Uh, and I do believe that these groups are prepared to put themselves and, by extension, Iraq at the service of Iranian interests. What are the implications of, you know, given all you've said, here are these groups, these non-state actors with direct ties to Iran who are fighting in Syria, fighting in Iraq, and, and some of them, at least two of them that I know have, have publicly toured Lebanon recently to talk about what role they might play in the event of a war between Israel and, and Lebanon. So, so these groups you know, with 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 no, uh, you know, they're not they're not embedded or beholden to the Iraqi state, even though they're in this bargaining relationship you talk about. What are the structural implications long term for 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 stateness uh, and for you know the ability to make policy in this region if you have actors like this that can that can autonomously carve out their own their own path in three or or more conflict zones? Absolutely, and I, but but I don't I I disagree that they are autonomously doing this. Um, I think, and I, this part I really hope I'm wrong about, uh, I do think that this is going to be a permanent fact of uh, uh, conflict in the region. I think it's going to be a, a, a permanent uh, feature of policymaking, something that we're going to have to keep in mind going into the future. I don't think this is, this is going to change or that these groups are going to go anywhere. Um, having said that, uh, I think that judging by previous behavior, if you look at Iran's relationship with Iraq, uh, you look at how Iran pursues its interests in Iraq, uh, you look at the various arms of the Iraqi state, you look at Sistani and where he fits in in all of this, and you look at these groups, there seems to be a reluctance to push any uh, a significant actor into a corner. Um, and I think that that will hold until, thing, until there's a perception of an extreme need uh, that must be satisfied. So my fear would be, for example, in a future war between Israel and Hezbollah, uh, the role that these groups will play. 
Absent that war, they neither, they neither have the autonomy nor the recklessness to uh, disturb a balance uh, uh, that sort of works for all, all sides concerned. But in a future conflict, again, Iran, Iran will pursue its interests, and these are Iranian assets. Yeah, I guess that's the key. I mean, and, 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 and I amend the way I, I phrase my question. Uh, they're not fully autonomous actors. They are actors that are largely steered by their patron, Iran, uh, and so they reflect state policy just in a in a non-state uh, vessel. L- let's let's end on uh, on on the question of politics. Uh, elections are coming up in Iraq in May. Uh, these these are are maybe some of the m- most important uh, elections since two thousand and three. How much of a watershed uh, or not will will these elections be in terms of the enshrinement of uh, of militia groups or or militia power? In politics, I don't. Again, this sort of goes back to our earlier discussion that this uh, what we're discussing is not something that emerged in 2014. It's long-standing. So uh, you do have uh, some groups that have contested uh, previous elections. I mean, find the number has increased. But the other thing is to keep in mind that Hasht is such a brand now with Iraqis, with ordinary Iraqis. Uh, I think this is something that's consistently misunderstood by uh, uh, non-Iraqis or even by Iraqis on the outside. Um, that they're, I mean, they have such popular currency, not as individual formations necessarily, but just as a brand, as an idea, as a sort of the mythology that uh, uh, sort of this uh, symbolic, iconic post-2014 hashed uh, holds for a lot of Iraqis. And so you do have all kinds of figures. Well, this is sort of an image, an image of, of uh, uh, self-reliance and toughness and sort of successful nationalist resistance against uh, takfiri terror? I mean, absolutely. It's sort of this selfless uh, 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 dedication to, to answering the call I mean, again, this is sort of this is this is the the narrative. I'm not. I mean, obviously, it's not. It's never going to be that simple. Right. No, but I mean, it reminds me a little bit of the post 9/11 uh, American mythologizing of 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 the sort of you know heroes in quotes who 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 uh, suited up and and went off to fight against terror. And when I was in Iraq uh, a few weeks ago, the the iconography and discussion around the Hashid felt very uh, similar similar to that. Absolutely. So so I mean, it's perfectly understandable that uh, even people. I mean. People have an incentive to even fabricate uh, having played a role in the hashed or to fabricate a relationship with the hashed um, or to pay lip service to the hashed or to appear as, as, as champions of the hashed with elections coming up. Um, so, I, and again, I think this is, this is uh, um, not necessarily, that, that does not translate necessarily into these elections being uh, um, actually fundamentally different from previous elections. As I said, <clears throat> um, some paramilitary organizations have uh, contested elections previously, including some of the most worrying uh, uh, groups like Asaab al haq who contested the elections of 2014. Uh, they didn't do very well, but the point is it's not so unprecedented um, for this to be to be happening. Beyond the issue of the hashed, I don't think this election... I think these elections are important in that they will uh, strengthen the image, uh, uh, warranted or not, but the image that uh, uh, the Iraqi state is trying to push or the Iraqi government is trying to push uh, of a sort of a post-ISIS Iraq, of sort of a normalized Iraq. Uh, and of course, this fits in with the uh, uh, improving bilateral relations with uh, the likes of Saudi Arabia and others, um, the liberation of Mosul and so forth. Uh, so I think the elections will be important in that regard, just as, as sort of one more block in, in building that image. 
but I do not see these these uh, elections being uh, a watermark, uh, a benchmark, or a watermark in, in in terms of their transformative impact. I don't think that the uh, fundamental nature of Iraqi politics is going to change with these uh, with these elections. Yeah, I mean that sounds right. Uh, I think a lot of the more breathless uh, takes on the Hashid uh, ignore the way in which the, uh, their their role in emergence is is part of a continuum and essentially is a is a is an adjustment of a existing trajectory rather than some kind of new uh, radical new development. This is the Nasi Kambanis in Beirut, uh, and uh, I was speaking with Fanar Haddad, a senior research fellow at the Middle East Institute at the National University of Singapore. Thanks, Fanar. Thank you. Order from Ashes, New Foundations for Security in the Middle East is a multi-year TCF project supported by the Carnegie Corporation of New York. TCF experts are studying new ways to manage conflict and promote stability. You can order the book and read the reports on our website. Go to tcf.org and look for the Arab Regional Security page. This is Thanasi Kambanis in Beirut, back from the break. I'm now joined on uh, uh, via Skype uh, by Aaron Lund in Stockholm. Aaron, thanks for coming on the TCF World podcast. Thank you. Uh, I want to start. I, I want to take you on a on a tour of of all things uh, uh, Syria and some of the work you've been doing. Uh, but I want to start with with an issue that seems very important and which I very uh, loosely understand or, or, or really don't understand at all. Uh, can you just walk me through what's happening now in Afrin? The short story is that Turkey invaded or intervened or whatever you word you prefer, Afrin, uh, and, and they're fighting the YPG, right? Well, America considers the PKK terrorist, and the PKK is really the YPG. So that's the same sort of organization, but for political purposes, America is now saying the YPG is something else and different in Turkey, in Syria, because we need to work with them against the Islamic State. And and the thing is, this corner of Syria, Afrin, uh, where you have uh, this intervention, is is the only place where you didn't have Islamic State units around it. So the um, the Americans have not been working with YPG. In, in that particular part of Syria. They've been working with them everywhere else in the northeast of Syria. So the, the, the Afrin YPG, this Afrin enclave in the far northwest, they've been left sort of to fend for themselves and they've been mostly, they've actually been fighting American uh, rebel allies instead uh, during the war and, and working with, with Assad's government and to some extent with the Russians. So instead of, of, uh, of American troops, in this area, you had Russian troops when the intervention was about to begin, and the Russians apparently did not want to get in the way of the Turks, so they moved aside, pulled their troops to the side, and and let the Turks intervene. And and Turkey sent in troops, and they sent in uh, uh, their own sort of the Syrian Arab and Turkmen rebel allies across the border, and they're now slowly but surely, I would say, probably beating the YPG, but it's taking time. Uh, and then comes the diplomatic game, uh, and that that you have the Russians are sort of trying to negotiate an understanding of some sort between Assad's government and Ankara because they don't they're working with the Turks in these peace processes in Astana and in in Sochi and so forth, 
but Assad is their real ally in Syria, and they want their you know their wet dream is for Assad and the Turks to make up and be friends. And 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 the United States has a real interest here too, right? Because uh, among other things, this uh, this clash you just described is diverting resources away from the war against ISIS. Exactly. So I mean, you know, America is kind of the uh, on the sidelines of this, really, because they don't really have leverage or influence in this area. But they are seeing their anti-ISIS fight in eastern Syria being drained of fighters because of this. So they, I mean, they they want it to end as well. And wait, uh, in, in what in what piece of this do America and Turkey almost come to blows? There's the other area on the other side of the of, of the Aleppo region. You have Manbij, which is uh, another Kurdish area, or sorry, Kurdish Arab area, but controlled by by the YPG or YPG allies at least. And there you have American troops stationed embedded with the uh, Kurdish or Kurdish Arab YPG allied forces. Um, so, so that's a, another explosive situation. I think as as long as Turkey's bogged down in Afrin, there's no risk of anything major happening in Manbij. I, I, I think. But Erdogan has made it very clear that he sees Afrin, you know, he's going to deal with Afrin and then he's going to deal with Manbij. And and how he plans to do that, I don't know. So this is maybe uh, uh, one of the more dangerous moments in terms of internationalization of the conflict uh, as as sort of the the Syrian element of the of the of the war in that area uh, winds into a final phase, the 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 international uh, uh, sort of conflict by proxy shifts into being a, um, potentially a direct international conflict uh, between foreign sponsor powers. The deconfliction between the United States and Russia seems to be working fine for the most part. You've had some clashes recently along the, the river as well, further east. Well, wait, weren't there several hundred Russian mercenaries killed by American air power recently? That that doesn't that doesn't sound like effective deconfliction to me. But for for except some incidents, you know, you've had a, a fairly fairly well functioning deconfliction there because both sides take it seriously, I think. And then you have these things happening as well. I, you do, but the the wild card here is really what Turkey does, and also the YPG because they they have agendas that do not align perfectly with with uh, well the YPG's agenda doesn't align perfectly with the Americans, Assad's doesn't align perfectly with with Russia's, and then you have Turkey which has its own whole different own thing going on they just want to get rid of the ypg and and so then you have the afrin invasion and then you have assad linking up with the ypg which is really his kind of enemy kind of not really enemy uh and he's now sending militias calling them popular forces into afrin to help the kurds and i think his hope and the hope of the Kurdish troops there is that you'll have a situation where Russia steps in and says, okay, this area is under Assad's protection, therefore it is under our protection and Turkey needs to get out. So, so but I mean, if I understand this very uh, complicated spaghetti of, of, of factors, it, it's only Russia and the United States that have even the theoretical possibility of stabilizing this very dangerous powder keg. Uh, and and neither of them, from what you say, really has the incentive or maybe even the the juice uh, to do the things that could that could stabilize this. this I, I wouldn't even say that the Americans have that kind of leverage in Afrin. They do. I mean, obviously in Manbij, obviously further east, uh, but that's not where the conflict is right now. It's it's in Afrin, and that's really. I mean, Russia can pick a side, or Russia can broker an agreement, or they can just muddle on as they've they've done so far. Um, but I think it's up to Russia to try to figure this out.
it, it, it's it's related to their position in northern Syria. It's related to their sort of grand strategy of stabilizing the the conflict. And I don't think they mind a lot if this conflict ends with Russia holding some territory in northern Syria. That doesn't threaten Russia in any way. It, Assad is furious, of course, but you know what can he do? Okay, and at the same time as 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 this this thing in the north is uh, unfolding. We have uh, a, a deadly campaign, uh, siege campaign against eastern Ghouta, the, the eastern suburbs of Damascus, where I think about 400,000 civilians live and where uh, uh, the, the Assad regime, with, again, full support of Russian air power and Iran, is uh, engaging in a scorched earth campaign that's largely killing civilians. Uh, uh, is that a foregone conclusion or is there some way to, uh, uh, for the international community to manage what's happening in Ghouta so that at, at a minimum we don't see the kind of civilian exodus or civilian death uh, uh, when the rebels there are finally defeated? I, I don't think there's a way of avoiding rebel defeat for the rebels or for their sponsors abroad. Um the question is, how does it happen? Now you have this big offensive that started, I think, 25th of February, the ground offensive, and they'd been bombing for a while before that, and they cut off aid and and, and medicine and UN convoys months before that. Um, so the question is, does it turn out to be a replay of Aleppo? And in what sense does it turn out to be a replay of Aleppo? I think I mean, it will. In many, in many ways, it already has, right? With hundreds of civilians killed, with the starvation siege, with the the aid aid community hostage to this illegal prevention of access. So, but the question is, how does it end, you know? And, and can it be, can it be ended quicker or more painless? Can it be, you know, I think the, the, the problem here might be that you have, as opposed to in Aleppo, you had basically one coalition of rebels, even though they fought each other at times, they negotiated as a unit, more or less. Um, in Ruta, that's not really the case. You have two, at least, blocks of, of rebels that have been fighting each other for a long time. And I think Assad's, uh, his 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 uh, his uh, plan here is probably to split them up and, and deal with each each of these territorial units separately. And we'll see how that turns out. But the, I mean, I think the the sane thing to do in this situation is probably just to start off with the assumption that the rebels will lose because I cannot see how anything else would happen. And you know, if if someone, if the United States or Turkey or Saudi Arabia or whomever, if they're willing to step in militarily and change the power, the balance of power on the ground, you know, because they want the rebels to win, then okay, if they do that, then that's a Different story, but but uh, but otherwise, otherwise, I guess your 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 implication is that uh, even you know even if uh, these these uh, rebel supporting countries uh, don't want the rebels to lose, they could help a lot of people and save a lot of lives by going ahead, starting now, and planning for uh, the kinds of humanitarian uh, uh, corridors and and basically the supervising of a surrender agreement that will inevitably come to pass, and which. By by not planning for that in Aleppo, they made the final days infinitely worse than they would have been had there been at least the infrastructure in place for for defeat when when the moment arrived. Yes, exactly. That's that's exactly what I mean. And 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 because I, I understand that the opposing sides here they don't want to legitimize each other. They don't want to sort of acknowledge the other sides is winning and and but i mean i think it, it, it's just if you have all of these civilians the un says three hundred and ninety three thousand. i think maybe it's 
more or less, I don't know. Uh, but you have all of these civilians and they're in a horrible situation and there's no way out for them at this moment. And they, they, uh, the, the rebel enclave will fall and they're going to be inside it until it falls, basically. The, the same thing to do, I think, is to just to tell the rebels, if you're allied to the rebels, that you're about to lose. We can see that. We're not going to step in to help you because that's, we're not going to do that. So we are willing to help you broker a deal to get out of here. Um, and Assad's, terms seem to be that he wants the rebels to evacuate north to Idlib or to some other area, some other country, maybe, I don't know. Um, and, and civilians who want to go with them can go with them. And I'm not sure that's legal under international law. And the way he's conducting the war up to here is certainly not legal under international law because he's depriving civilians of food and he's bombing hospitals and everything. So, I mean, I, I think it's fair to say that, that barring any major surprising sort of, uh, unexpected upsets, then, then what we're seeing is a new phase in the war where the question is not who rules Damascus, but the question is how does Damascus rule and what does Damascus rule? Well, right. I mean, does Damascus rule Syria or does Damascus rule, uh, I mean, you know, the, 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 the coast and the hinterland? Uh, uh, yeah, but if you have Damascus, you have Homs, you have Hama, you have Latakia, you have Tartus, you have Aleppo, you have Deir Azor, you have, well, you don't have Raqqa, but you have most of the stuff there. You don't have Raqqa, you don't have Idlib, you have only half of Dara, but that's pretty much Syria. I mean, <laughs> to, to, to be frank, that, that's really the, the, the lion's share of the economy. That's most of the sort of the symbolic, uh, capital of it. Um, and, and he's got the UN seat. He's got, you know, he, he's not really in danger of being deposed anymore. Uh, I think that's that's pretty clear. Your sense is that we are still seeing, uh, uh, you know, another step in what's a methodical clearing of the board by Assad, you know, having secured the inner parts. He's now going to finish uh, finish re, uh, reasserting control over the heartland by by taking Huta back over, and then he'll his last major threat will come from. Idlib and and we'll see another siege bombardment and and sort of grinding campaign to take over Idlib uh, like he's doing currently in Huta and that that is the sort of end game of this war. Yeah, I mean, very likely. But I mean, the problem for him is that he's running up now against the limits set by all these foreign powers. He cannot go up against the American Air Force. He cannot just attack the Turkish troops in, in the north. And there are limits for him in the south that red lines laid down by Israel and maybe by Jordan. And, and is there any, I mean, any sense, do you have any sense of why, uh, why what's happening in Ghouta matters so little to the international community? Most of the countries that used to support the rebels or who, you know, they still support the rebels, they have, you know, made a mental note of the fact that this is not a battle they can win anymore. And that's why Huta doesn't matter as much to them. And I do think you are actually seeing a lot of commotion in the Security Council and this resolution and speeches and so forth. So, I mean, it's not like no one cares, but it's 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 been done already. And in terms of media coverage, I guess there's a, just a lot of Syria fatigue as well. Wrap up with your with your uh, with your assessment of America's commitment to a land war in Syria, which which sort of snuck up on us. And, and somehow, you know, tr Trump, who was interested in, in retrenching uh, out of these Middle Eastern wars, has somehow presided over a, ma a major, if quiet, escalation of the American uh, commitment to, 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 to being on the ground in Syria. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it's not clear to me how much Trump himself 
understands about this because he says different things than everyone else in his government about what they're doing in Syria. He says, we're just there to bash ISIS and go home. And, you know, his government seems to operate according to another strategy, which is we're staying, Tillerson says, we're staying to get Assad out, we're staying to get Iran out, we're staying to build democracy, we're staying to do all of these things by having special forces in the Kurdish regions and, and isolating Assad and boycotting the government and preventing uh, others from, from sending reconstruction aid and so forth. So, you know, I, 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 I'm not exactly sure what's going on in the United States, and I'm not entirely sure that, that the White House is all on the same page here. I wouldn't know, but, but it doesn't seem that way. Um, but, but, but yeah, I mean, the, the Trump administration seems, or the Pentagon at least, seems to be working on the, you know, the idea that we're staying in these areas indefinitely. And we're not sending reconstruction aid, we're sending some sort of lower level early recovery stabilization aid and we're encouraging others to send more money to build these areas up and then Turkey goes, you know, insane with, with outrage because that's PKK territory to them. And then you have all of these international conflicts and you have Russia trying to sort that out in a way that's friendly to, their, to them and their interests and to Assad. It's a mystery to me exactly how that will resolve, if it will resolve and maybe we'll just continue to see this low-level sort of international uh, friction, and hopefully no, 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 no bigger conflagration. Um, but I, yeah, that that's that's where it is. I think. Well, so so it sounds like at a minimum, it's going to continue to be a major uh, a major focus of uh, military policy and of diplomacy, such as it exists uh, in our in our time. So I, I guess we'll have uh, we'll have more to say uh, as the as the months and, and years go on. Aaron, thanks so much uh, for joining me on the TCF World podcast. Thank you. This is Thanasi Kambanis in Beirut, and I've been talking with Aaron Lund uh, in Stockholm uh, via Skype. TCF World has been brought to you by the Century Foundation a progressive public policy think tank that seeks to foster opportunity, reduce inequality, and promote security at home and abroad. For more information about the work that TCF does, please visit tcf.org or follow us on Twitter and Facebook.